The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Dying of the Light, Episode 1, July 1922. Against my better judgment, it really was love at first sight. I spotted her through the crowd, a hundred people talking, drinking, laughing, a hundred irrelevant faces. I looked past them all to the other end of the garden, and there she was, lithe, doe-eyed, leaning against a stone wall. Her hair lulled to one side. She held a champagne flute in her fragile fingers. Her dark hair glistened underneath the garlands of light bulbs. She looked perfectly at ease. And her lips. I had never seen such lips. Sure, some women really know how to wear lipstick, but this was different. Her mouth was like a tiny heart, and that scarlet pucker nearly glowed in the evening light. A kind of smile, a kind of taunt. Lips that spoke a thousand words without even moving. I elbowed through the crowd. I stepped on feet. I didn't care. I just needed to meet her. Her head lifted as I approached, and she smiled, amused, as if I were already late to an appointment, as if she had any idea who I was. All alone, I said. Just me and the moon, she replied. Well, it's fine company tonight. I glanced up at that perfect circle shining over the mansion rooftop. Sure is, said the girl, but not much for conversation. I'm wit, I said. Never seen you at the Blanches before. You new in town? Yes and no, she said, draining the last of her champagne. I've been trying to get out more. Really, I said. What do you like? The girl giggled. It was the sound of wind chimes. I don't know to tell you the truth. There's so much I've never seen. I don't even know where to start. How about that? I said. I happen to know a thing or two about the local nightlife. Do you now? She ran a finger over the rim of the flute, and the glass sang with surprising resonance. So, if you need better company than the moon, I added. I might like that, she said. But as for where to start, I'd love to start with your name. She folded her arms. Tilly. Pleased to meet you, Tilly. Likewise. When should we paint the town? Oh, I exclaimed. So, you'd really like to join me? Seems like I ought to, she said. My father always said I should keep my wits about me. I laughed aloud. She was cute, and she was funny. Nobody told me she was funny. Yes, I knew who she was. This was no chance meeting. Our courtship was practically arranged. The party was essentially a blind date, except with five dozen extra people serving as human scenery. The whole idea 
started with my cousin, Zania Blanche. We were lying in deck chairs, pretending to read magazines beneath the baking sun when Zania broached the topic. She's really the sweetest thing, she said. A real-life China doll, I swear, but sharp as a pin, too. Wise beyond her years, you can tell, and just bursting with energy. I'm sure she's wonderful, I sighed. But how come you've never mentioned her before? I never met her before. Isn't she your neighbor? Sure she is, but she always keeps to herself. You've heard of Old Man St. Clair, haven't you? Nice enough fellow, but he never leaves that dusty old house. He probably raised her the same way. And you met her where again? At a party, you drip. Aren't you listening? I met her in this very garden. Ah, yes, I said, reaching for my glass of lemonade. I suppose you did mention that, didn't you? Listen here, Whitaker. I'll arrange the whole thing. Just a regular garden party. Invite the usual crowd. I haven't thrown one in weeks, and summer's a waste without them. It's a perfect excuse. Excuse for what? To meet her, to chat her up. That's what you're best at, isn't it? Small talk with women you hardly know. I smirked at this. How well Zania knew me. How well she knew everyone, for that matter. If Zania wanted to arrange an introduction, there was no point in arguing. She would hammer the proposal home, day in and day out, until I relented. Besides, you don't have to marry the girl, Zania continued, adjusting the strap of her sundress. Although, I rolled my eyes. Although, if you did, she said, it would solve your little problem, wouldn't it? I said nothing, only took another sour sip. But she was right, as always. Marrying a rich and wholesome girl, quite literally the girl next door, would set a lot of things right. There was a certain sameness to the Blanche's street, which wound its way up a grassy hill and disappeared into a blotch of trees. The houses stood a safe distance from each other, and every one had its hedges and trellises, pillars and handsome double doors. All summer long, you could spot groundskeepers clipping leaves and mowing lawns. The owners, meanwhile, hid inside or in the back until they felt bored enough to reveal themselves. But the St. Clair house was different. A stone wall rose all around the property, the masonry caked in ivy. Between the bars of the ever-closed iron gate, you could see the pleated stonework, the half-timbered construction of the upper levels, and the slate rooftops studded with turrets. It wasn't common to see an authentic Queen Anne domicile in Mount Lebanon, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was the first building to ever grace the block. The sun had nearly set when I arrived, and the sky burned crimson. I loved the purple wisps of clouds. Such skies reminded me of my time at sea, and I suddenly missed my steamer trunk days. From the upper decks, I could lean against the rails and watch the horizon till every last star made itself known. A butler 
welcomed me. He was a nervous, hairless man with newspaper skin and an ill-fitting tuxedo. He pulled open the gate and ushered me inside, then quickly locked it again. He hunched over, as if bending under a low bar, and led me through a church-like door. Above the arched stone frame, the keystone was a gargoyle's face, frowning grimly at all who approached. The interior was equally moody, with an idle fireplace and tall windows of colored glass. The stone walls were covered in tapestries, the weaving faded from years of display. In the middle, a man sat in a high-backed chair, a book resting in his lap. But I couldn't be fooled. I knew that this was Mr. St. Clair, and he was waiting to meet me. Every gentleman caller dreads this moment, but St. Clair was an unusually fearsome father. Even seated, the man was evidently tall. His face was long and angular. Unlike his daughter, his eyes were tiny and unimpressed. He wore a silk smoking jacket and slippers, and a gold watch chain dangled from his pocket. Slowly, St. Clair set his book on an end table and said, Mr. Price, welcome. Uh, thank you, I said. I'm glad to finally meet you. St. Clair smiled vaguely at this. He proceeded to tap his fingers together, examining me. And what have you planned for this evening? I was hoping to take Tilly to some of my favorite haunts, I said. Music, dancing, but nothing risque, I promise. As long as she returns at a reasonable hour, St. Clair said. Might I ask, I said, your accent, is it French? St. Clair raised an eyebrow. It is indeed. Well, how about that, I said. I spent a little time in Paris. Did you now? The man sat up, looking genuinely pleased. During the war? No, I said. I'm afraid I wasn't old enough. You were lucky, said St. Clair. War is a terrible thing. As you Americans say, you dodged a bullet. I laughed at this. I was so accustomed to apologizing for my inaction. Relatives always shook their heads, insisting that I should have lied about my age and enlisted anyway. But having seen the ruins of French villages, the tattered landscape of the Western Front, the legless veterans begging for scraps in the streets, the close friends who jumped at any sudden noise, I can't say I regret my fate. After the war, I said, I rented a little apartment on the left bank. Quel magnifique, said St. Clair, clapping his hands. Et est-ce que vous voulez parler la langue française aussi? Un peu, I said, smiling at the familiar sounds. Mais tous les Américains s'adite. The man burst into laughter. It was a low laugh, a sound like shoveled coal, and I instantly liked it. Papa, called a voice, are you torturing our guest? St. Clair craned his head toward the door, where Tilly had just emerged. Her appearance disarmed me. 
her navy blue dress was cut into a neat triangle. She wore a tiny fascinator hat, and a net was drawn over her forehead. Her eyelashes alone made me jelly-legged. He speaks our language, St. Clair exclaimed. He lived in Paris. Why did you not tell me that? We're not that well acquainted, retorted Tilly, clacking across the stone floor. Well, go then, St. Clair stood, waving his hands at the door. Acquaint yourselves. And for the first time in my life, everything felt right. If only I had known how deceptive a feeling can be. I took Tilly to the Darlington Hotel. It only made sense. I knew everyone there, and the music was always a raucous good time. Whitford Price, cried Elsa Porter, kissing me on the cheeks. Where have you been? I haven't seen you in weeks. And who is this lovely creature? Isn't it just like you not to tell anyone you're seeing someone? Run away now, you poor thing. This boy is nothing but trouble. I chuckled through Elsa's playful abuse, as did Tilly. When the band struck up, playing an up-tempo version of Knock Need Honey, Tilly grabbed my arm and dragged me to the dance floor. She threw herself into the rhythm, as did I. From the first shimmy, I could tell she knew how to move, but it took us some minutes to dance in tandem. She acted like a girl who had aced the lessons, but never shared the dance floor with a single partner. Song after song, our bodies drew closer together. The din overpowered us, made conversation impossible, so we spoke with our limbs and faces, the oldest language there is. And so it went. In the following weeks, I'd pick her up at sundown, drive her into Pittsburgh, and show her everything I could think of. We watched a cabaret act. We caught a midnight screening of a Valentino picture. We strolled the downtown streets, ducked into a half dozen speakeasies. She drank sparingly, but her mean was drunker than anyone's. Much to my surprise, Tilly seemed to know every tidbit about the city. That's the blockhouse, she announced, pointing to a stout brick structure. Is it? I said. I'd walked past the building scores of times, without knowing what it was. The oldest building in western Pennsylvania, Tilly went on. They almost moved it to Shenley Park. Can you believe it? Here it is, standing in the same place for a hundred and forty years, and somebody wants to up and move it. No kidding. I shook my head. Are you some kind of history buff? You don't know the half of it, she chortled. Other trivia popped up all the time. The capital of Ceylon. Long ago winners of the Kentucky Derby. The technical length of a jiffy, which is apparently one sixtieth of a second. I could barely keep up with her random facts, so I made up for it in stories. I told her the oddest anecdotes about my stuffy old family my year-long escape to Europe, my tennis lessons. Wait a minute, Tilly cried. You play tennis? Sure I do, I said. I've got rackets in the trunk. Do you? 
Never once, but I've always wanted to. You have to teach me. I'm game, I said. When? Right now. Now? But it's the middle of the night. She clasped her hands. Please? We're not dressed for it. And I I don't know about you, but I'm too tipsy to throw a dart, much less serve a ball. Tilly turned her head irresistibly sideways and wailed, Please? And that's how we found ourselves sneaking into the Plainfield Country Club at 3 a.m. And in the dim moonlight that glowed through a blanket of clouds, we smacked balls across the court. If Tilly had any talent for the sport, she didn't let on. But I was astounded how easily she found the balls in the general darkness of the place. I could barely see the net, but Tilly always managed to find a ball, which she sent flying high into the air, more like shot put than tennis. Each time, she doubled over in drunken hysterics, and it was the most wonderfully silly thing I'd ever done. On one particular night, we took a drive down a long road I knew, deep into the country. We passed the border into Washington County and lost ourselves in the woods and farmland, which loomed darkly around us. With the windows rolled down, the summer air was moist and cool, and we could hear the songs of insects beyond the rush of wind. Ever been out this way? I called. Tilly only shook her head. It's hard to appreciate in the dark, I said, but it's pretty as a picture. I always love to come out here and sketch. She leaned an elbow against the window frame, looking as carefree as I'd ever seen her. I want to see your paintings, she said. Oh, I'm sure you'll see them eventually. Stop here, she said suddenly. I obeyed. Somehow, I always obeyed, whether her ideas made sense or not. This was how we'd climbed through a friend's window and onto the roof of a post office. This was how we'd filched a bottle of scotch without the bartender noticing. Tilly was reckless and absurd, and I accepted every anarchic proposal. Now we were parked by the side of the road, the engine quiet, the headlights off. Nothing but us and the darkness. She kissed me. She lunged, her face mashing into mine. Of all the kisses I'd known, this was the first that a girl had ever initiated. I felt heady and euphoric, as if my lips had never graced another's. Her skin was cool and smooth, like the pages of a glossy magazine. She smelled of patchouli. My hands explored her blouse, but she fell away. This was the first time she had ever said no to anything, even without the word itself. Yet somehow, I wasn't disappointed. The pleasure remained, humming effortlessly in my mind. This feeling wasn't excitement per se, not in the way I'd felt excitement in the bordellos of Paris and Berlin. Everything was foggy otherworldly, a sensation I'd never known, an opiate, a steam bath, a great swallow of horseradish. I wonder if I love you, I said aloud. 
The words surprised me. I hadn't meant to say anything. I'd only sipped from my flask, yet inebriation had washed over me all the same. That's a lovely thing to wonder, Tilly said, and her voice bounced in my head like the soft thrum of a tennis ball. There were a thousand other moments, as you can probably guess. If you've ever met that someone, you already know. You know what it's like to be 21 years old, footloose and contrarian, and to find that partner in crime. Tilly loved the excitement of the moment. She never dwelled on the past, so neither did I. At first, holding her hand was easy. Later, I put an arm around her shoulder as we strolled the dark streets of Oakland or Deutschtown, always on the lookout for harmless mischief. As August approached, I basked in that aura of joy. The clock ticked slower. I cherished every minute of this burgeoning new life. How quickly my temperament changed, yet how naturally the nights unfolded. And then, suddenly, it ended. In a single day, everything I knew was capsized. You've been listening to The Dying of the Light, Episode 1, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music provided and licensed by audioblocks.com. If you like what you're hearing, you may also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories, the first volume in the Elizabeth Crown series, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And keep an eye out for new Elizabeth Crown titles scheduled for release later this year. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. <laughs>